All right, we're recording. Uh, this is Jeff. I have Sherry here again, and we are making our way through C.S. Lewis's first published work, um, Spirits in Bondage, yeah. A Cycle of Lyrics. It is a book of poems, and we are in the first of um, three sections that the book is broken down into. Uh, the first section is called, is it the prison, the prison house? The prison. Part one, the prison house is what it's called. Yes. And we've made, our, we've made our way through the first three poems of this segment of the book, and now we're on to the fourth. And do, do you want to give some more insight, Sherry, after we read the poem, or do you want to explain some of the things that we find in this first poem? Uh, actually, I was going to relate it to the second one of the next poem that we we're oh. going to read. So I'll just wait. I'll just hang on to it. Okay. Well, I will then read poem number four. It's called Victory. Roland is dead, Cahulin's crest is low. The battered war rear wastes and turns to rust, and Helen's eyes and Isilt's lips are dust, and dust the shoulders and the breasts of snow. The fairy people from our woods are gone. No dryads have I found in all our trees. No triton blows his horn about our seas and Arthur sleeps for Henson Avalon. The ancient songs, they wither as the grass, and waste as doth a garment waxen old. All poets have been fools who thought to mold a monument more durable than grass, or than brass. <laughs> for these decay, but not for that decays, the yearning, high, rebellious spirit of man the never rested yet since life began from striving with red nature and her ways. Now in the filth of war, the bearsark shout of battle, it is vexed and yet so oft out of the deeps of old, it rose aloft that they who watch the ages may not doubt. Though often bruised, oft broken by the rod, Yet like the phoenix from each fiery bed, higher the stricken spirit lifts its head, and higher till the beast become a god. Mm. You know, anything to say about that one? <laughs> well, I did, a, I did a little bit of digging, actually. I, I actually looked on Wikipedia, looked up spirits of bondage on Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. did you, have you done that? I have not. I'm a very poor student. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I thought was interesting, because last time we talked, I, I said I didn't, I thought that from what I was reading, the poems I was reading, I thought that C.S. Lewis was agnostic, and then, and then I was reminded that he was an atheist, mm. like, claimed to be an atheist. But in the, now I don't know how, how um, um, right, the Wikipedia pages, but they do say there that he is writing it from an agnostic viewpoint. Okay. He's writing these poems. Kind of, well, yeah, but that angry young man, you know, kind of not, not a total non-believer, you know, just kind of shaking his fist at God, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so there was, there's that. Um, I just wanted to throw that in there. And then these people that he mentioned, and another thing they said too was um, for his age, when he entered the military, his, his, um, 
you know, we call them the guys that are higher up in, in, in office than he is, his superiors. They couldn't believe how well read he was for a guy his age. Hmm. Um, and not, not just in, um, like, you know, modern, modern novels, but in, in classics in, and a lot of mythology. And I know that that was really a heavy point in his education. He loved mythology. Um, Beowulf is a favorite of his and, um, and so on. So it makes sense that he, he, he's, he's in that world, right? Like, because, you know, when you're 20 something, you don't read a lot of something if you don't like it. (laughs) So I think, you know, and, and so I looked up some of these people, um, Roland and, how do you say that guy? Kuhulain? Kuhulain, I think. Probably getting it wrong. (laughs) They were both, um, Roland was a French hero during a period of Charlemagne, and Kuhulain is a really old story in Ireland, has kind of a mythological element to it. And Helen of, is Helen of Troy, of course. And Isolt is also known as Isolde, which is the story of Tristan and Isolde. Okay. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it's I've, kind I've of like... I've heard a, it, but I'm not familiar with it. Romeo-Juliet type, you know, tragic love story. Okay. Um, and there was another thing. Oh, yeah. And then the, um, I'm just, I just wanted to give you some of the the lingo because um, I think it really helps to you know Arthur is in there the dryads the triton is you know the guy this is, is a a lower god uh, of the sea but they have the um, pitchfork and all that stuff mm-hmm. and and then um, he says now in the filth of war this is the fifth stanza the beginning of the fifth stanza now in the filth of war, the Bearsark shout of battle, it is vexed. And I thought, what is that word? I did Bears- look that one up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I looked up so much stuff now, I'm trying to remember what was that was that Nordic people? Yeah, it's a it's a Norse warrior or, or a Viking, and what I read about it is they ran into battle without any armor. So it's basically a, a bear skin um uh very um, fierce warrior running into battle. It's basically a Viking. Without yeah. And what I read about it was that they were in some kind of um, trance-like state. And it is the derivative of the word berserk. Oh, okay. Yes. I think I did remember reading that. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say crazed. And then I held back and I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, berserk. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so that really that really gives you um, the bears are shout of battle, like you know, there's these crazed warriors, right, running in there with you know, in some kind of trance-like state. They're they don't have any of their faculties; they're just killers, you know, in that in that sense. So I, I just thought that was really interesting. Um, yeah, so that's a little you know a little bit of interesting. Um, background to some of the words that he's using yeah i have several guesses as i read through this and you know weigh it against some of the information that you shared right there it seems to be at least the first three or four stanzas maybe the first three stanzas um he's comparing 
or contrasting, always get those mixed up. The difference between um, poetry and stories and the things that excite his imagination, because I know he had a love of particularly North, Norse mythology, um, if not Irish mythology as well. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's comparing that to more of what he sees as the real world, um, you know, the, the suffering and the troubles that he sees in life, particularly in battle and in war. And then he, he turns towards that at the end, I would say, in the last two or three stanzas. So the first seems to be, you know, all of these things that the poets seem to dream up don't seem to last or they seem to die away. Um, you know, Roland is dead and Roland is based on a, a historical figure. I did kind of look at that a little bit, um, but there was a lot of, you know, um, legend around Roland as well. Um, but he just seems to be focused a little bit in the beginning on, you know, these, these things have died away. These things that were part of our dreams or part of our mythology, you know, we don't really see them around us if we ever saw them at all. Again, I'm just stabbing it at guesses here. Um, and he, you know, he even says that all poets have been fools uh, to think that they could mold something that was going to last for a long time, but it all decays. It's decayed. Um, but the thing that has never rested and doesn't decay is this rebellious spirit of man. Um, and then it seems to me that he's linking that to kind of the berserkers spirit or the spirit of men in battle who are fighting for greater things uh, that they can only attain after death. And that's what I'm connecting it to Norse mythology and thinking about, you know, Valhalla and where all the, the warriors in North, North, I keep saying North, <laughs> Norse mythology go. Yeah. Um, so that's there's just some some ideas that came to mind as I'm, you know, looking through this again. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing that I had to keep looking back to when I was reading the poem was that it's called Victory. Mm. It sounds really like defeat. <laughs> yes. Right? So he's saying Roland is dead and Roland died a martyr's death in, in, a, in a battle. Mm-hmm. Cuhulain's crest is low, and Cuhulain was a was also a dog, like a mythological dog figure too, right? So the crest of the dog, like you know, he, the ferociousness of, of him mm-hmm. was low. He was defeated. The battered war rear wastes and turns to rust. So you can just imagine all of the paraphernalia on the battlefield, you know, just laying around. Mm-hmm. It's over, right? But there's all this stuff in there, and it's just going to rust and. Helen's eyes and Isolde's lips are dust. And, mm-hmm. and to me, that's almost like the women who have been effect- directly affected by this war. I mean, it's a, it's a victory, but they haven't got their sons. They don't have their husbands. Mm, they've lost everything worth living yeah. for. Yeah. And dust, dust the shoulders and the breasts of snow. Um, the very people from our woods are gone. So there's, you know, the... Um, he talks about it I think it's in the next poem actually anyway um, yeah you know Europe was so devastated after the war right 
Um, mm. Everything was everything was destroyed and and burnt and burnt out and you know uh, logged and like it was just it was just devastated and and so the ferry people had to leave you know and the mythology left when they left right mm-hmm. all that left um no dryads have i found in all our trees they're another kind of nymph and no triton blows his horn about our seas the seas were full of wreckage arthur sleeps far hence in avalon um the ancient songs they wither as the grass and waste as doth a garment waxen old all poets have been fools who thought to mold a monument more durable than grass so you know, there was a lot of people writing victory poems. But to him, I mean, in his first three stanzas anyway, when he looks at the victory, it's a loss. It's a defeat. Mm-hmm. You know, he sees the, the pain and the emotional pain, and the wreckage and probably the futility of it all and the folly of it all, right? So that, and, and that's kind of what interested me I mean, the fact that he called it victory, it, it's really sarcastic. Yeah. That's the thought that I was just having because, you know, as he says, all of these things are dead. As he's looking all around him, you know, at the reality that he sees, you know, all of these, all, all of the, the myths, the poets, it's all, it's all gone. And the only victory that can be apprehended is that of those in battle who are giving their life um, for this thing that, you know, if he's approaching it from an atheistic, non-metaphysical standpoint of just seeing those things, you know, as not real, not true, then yeah, it is a sarcastic title of victory. It's just like, yeah, there's, there's your victory. You know, you, you fought for nothing. You fought for the dirt. And I think that, you know, I mean, so many lives were lost. It was just an incredible number of people. Everyone was affected by by that war, and and so, you know, probably as as a young man and as many young men, they 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 jumped in, you know, full of full of um, excitement and, and and patriotism and whatever, you know, and, and we're gonna we're gonna do this thing and we're gonna fight, and and then when it's all over. It's then you, you know, it's what, what do we, what happened here? What, what was this all for? And I, and everyone I loved is gone and I'm the only one left standing. And, you know, it must feel really much like defeat. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Do you want to read the next one? uh, Number five. Sure. Irish Nocturne. Now the gray mist comes creeping up from the waste ocean's weedy strand and fills the valley as a cup if filled of evil drink in a wizard's hand. And the trees fade out of sight like dreary ghosts unhealthily into the damp, pale night till you almost think that a clearer eye could see some shape come up of a demon seeking apart his meat as Grendel sought in heart the things that sat by the wintry log Grendel, or the shadowy mass of Balor, 
or the man with the face of clay, the gray, gray walker who used to pass over the rock arch nightly to his prey. But here at the dumb slow stream where the willows hang, with never a wind to blow the mists apart, bitter and bitter it is for thee, O oh my heart, looking upon this land where poets sang. Thus with a dreary shroud unwholesome over its spread, and knowing the fog and the cloud in her people's heart and head, even as it lies forever upon her coasts, making them dim and dreamy, lest her sons should ever arise. And remember all their boasts, for I know that the colorless skies and the blurred horizons breed lonely desire in many words and brooding in love and deed. Hmm. Oh, that was the other thing that I read too about this, about this book. Um, it was meant to be read in the order that it's printed in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me, because it's taking you on a journey. Yeah. So remember the last time I told you, I said I wasn't sure if it was chronological or not. Oh, okay. When we talked about the uh, sacked out village. Yeah. And the one before it. Yeah. It gave me a feeling of, of chronological order, actually, to read the two side by side. So, yeah, I don't know if it's chronological, but it's supposed to be read in this order. So, and, yeah. Yeah, I liked, um, let me, I, I had two thoughts. Um, I'm going to. I guess I'll touch on the one that just came right after you said that. Um, yeah, when we talked about French Nocturne um, and then comparing it to this one, it's almost like he's, it's almost like he's either looking at it, his old Irish countryside um, in his memory, but then seeing it painted with all of this, you know, this darkness or this foreboding that was coming over it. So that's, that's one of my first thoughts. And then the other one that I had that I just, I just really like the imagery as he, how he describes, you know, this gray mist creeping in um, as if it were filling up the drink in a wizard's hand. I don't know. There's just something, well, obviously magical about that, but it was just. Well, you can actually see that, right? Like you can can see the mist coming from off the ocean and filling a little valley like a cup. Yeah, I can picture it. Yeah. It's just, that's one of the things that poetry, um, you know, is capable of doing so well is just like painting this or setting this picture up in your mind. Yeah, I had a total, I had a, I had a, well, okay, so remember I told you I, I, I downloaded that Kahulane story? It's, mm-hmm. written, it's written by Lady, I think her name is Gregory, in 1902. And she was uh, British, but she was born and raised in Ireland and had an Irish nanny. And the Irish nanny used to tell her those stories because I guess they're very old stories, um, ancient Irish mythology. Mm-hmm. And she felt it important to write it down because the Irish, okay, so it was really interesting to find out this, that the, the, they were a oppressed people, the Irish, for almost forever, right? They were always um, underneath some other, you know, first other government or country. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so... And she had a love for them, and she had a love for their for their mythology and for their history. 
And but the powers that be didn't feel it was necessary for the Irish mythologies to be told or their history. That would just give them ideas about themselves and then you know they would be harder to control. And um, so nobody wrote it down and, and so she did. And she got a lot of flack for it actually. Hmm. And um, W.B. Yeats actually does the, um, in, uh, the pro, or not the prologue, but what do you call that? Like the, the little write-up before the, the book? For the forward, her. yeah. The forward, or, yeah. He was, uh, and he was a, an Irish poet. And he was so thankful that she took it upon herself to do this. And so, and she was a woman. And it wasn't a woman's job to do this either. Mm-hmm. You know? And... And so I, I read that because I was looking up the, the, the character, Cahooling, and I didn't, because I never heard of him before. And then I read this whole thing around it, and then I, then I read Irish Nocturne, and I said, oh, wow, this really ties in. Because, I mean, this is what I'm seeing anyway. I couldn't be wrong. Um, but he's, he's looking, he's home, okay? I'm just imagining he's home after the war. He's, there he is. And... He's looking at his his homeland and he's seeing it um, as a place where once all this mythology thrived, you know, it had a place and and when it thrived, the sun was shining and it was, you know, but now, um, well, let me just read here. Looking upon this land where poets sang, thus with the dreary shroud unwholesome over it spread, which is kind of like an oppressor. Yeah. And knowing the fog and the cloud in her people's heart and head, right? People of Ireland. Even as it lies forever upon her coasts. So, you know, the cloud is on the coast, but it's also in their hearts and in their heads, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're oppressed, making them dim and dreamy lest her sons should ever arise. That's really interesting because that's exactly why they didn't promote Irish mythology mm. and, and some of their history. And remember all their boasts, right? For I know that the colorless skies and the blurred horizons breed lonely desire in many words and brooding and never a deed. They just, they were just lonely and brooding. Mm-hmm. You know, and they didn't. They they couldn't. They they couldn't rise up. So, I mean, I don't know if I'm just reading into this, but that's really what it feels like to me. Like he's looking at his country, and and he's mourning the fact that they they can't be proud of their history. They can't be proud of their mythology. They can't, you know, they don't. It's not written down anywhere. I mean, and. This Lady Gregory wrote this Cahoulain story in 1902, so it's not too, um, it's pretty new to have an Irish myth written down, right? Mm-hmm. In his time. And, and I think probably her, her having done that brought up a lot of prejudice and made the Irish feel like this poem, you know? Dim and dreamy and and oppressed and, you know. I'm thinking about this one too, um, in comparison to 
the other Nocturne poem, French Nocturne, that we read in our last conversation. Mm -hmm. And they both just seem to have that sense of hopelessness to them. You know, uh, like in the in the French Nocturne, you know, he kind of snaps himself out of what seems to be hopelessly dreaming about whether where that um, plane that flies by is going and how it can possibly you know escape off to somewhere else outside of this prison of war and of death and of suffering. Yeah, that would make a, that would make a good. Um, I mean, the, the the title of it, Nocturne, in both poems is it's evening, and evening is when the sun sets. When yeah, it's, when it's said and done, when there's nothing more you can do about it, right? So, the symbolism yeah. of of darkness. Yeah. Night. <laughs> Lonely desire in many worlds and brooding. And never a deed. <laughs> Did I say worlds? I meant words. <laughs> yeah. Huh. I, like, I like that. Um, and Grendel. Grendel was out of Beowulf. Right. Um, Brendan Grendel was <laughs> really interesting. According to Norse mythology, Grendel was a direct descendant of Cain. Hmm. Yeah. This is a quick Wikipedia search on Baylor in Irish mythology was a tyrant warrior of the Fomo Fomorians, a group of supernatural beings. He was often described as a giant with a large eye that wreaks destruction whenever the eye is open. He's been interpreted as a personification of drought, blight, and the scorching sun. Yeah. So it's like he's in these in these this poem and the last one, you know, he's sprinkling in both Norse and Irish Irish mythology. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that we mentioned this before, but Lewis was born uh, in Ireland. That's actually where he's, where he was from. Um, he's considered Irish. Uh, you know, his mother was Irish and I can't remember how old he was when he left. Well, she died when he was 10 and he was still there. He was somewhere near Belfast, I think. Mm -hmm. I think I remember reading in Surprised by Joy that, you know, they had a really big um, library in the house. And so he spent a lot of time um, consuming the books that were in there. And if I remember right, his dad was an attorney, a lawyer of some sort. I may be remembering that wrong, but I would anticipate that they had a lot of um, books to keep him busy. <laughs> not the purpose of keeping him busy, but he would, he would not be short on things to read. No, and his mother went to to college or university. I don't know because um, they just read over this stuff so quickly, um, which was really unusual for a woman in her time. Hmm. To so she was very big on reading many books. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah um, and I wonder too, you know, that if, if during the war he was, um, oh, did we have a little glitch? My internet's really sucking lately. I can, I can hear you fine. I haven't, I haven't noticed anything. Um, I wondered when I read this, if, you know, he could have, he could have, ignorance is bliss, right? He could have been living in a world where as an Irishman, he was, he never experienced prejudice or was never told how dumb Irishmen are and mm. stuff like that. And then during the war, he could have encountered that, right? Yeah. And he came home and he looked at his homeland differently and, um, and realized that it was as oppressed as, you know, some of the people that he may have seen during the war, mm -hmm. right? And, and hadn't really noticed it before because he was in it. So. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Because he says, with never a wind to blow the mists apart, you know, bitter and bitter it is for thee, oh my heart. So it's like, you know, he's looking at, at Ireland and, and that's where he says, um, looking upon this land where poets sang, thus with the dreary shroud unwholesome over it spread, and knowing the fog and the cloud in her people's heart and head, so, yeah, I, I just wondered if maybe he had encountered something that was new to him and he had his eyes opened, you know, mm. about his own people. In that line, even as that shroud, even as it lies forever upon her coast. Yeah. It's almost, it's almost as if, you know, from, from his perspective, maybe looking back on it and, and the idea that you were talking about, he was just thinking, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's always been this way with Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. All right, I'm going to jump to the next one. Yeah. Number six. It's a short one. It's called Spooks. Last night I dreamed that I was come again unto the house where my beloved dwells after long years of wandering and pain. And I stood out beneath the drenching rain, and all the street was bare and black with night. But in my true love's house was warmth and light. Yet I could not draw near nor enter in, and long I wondered if some secret sin or old unhappy anger held me fast. Till suddenly it came into my head that I was killed long since and lying dead. Only a homeless wraith that way had passed. So thus I found my true love's house again and stood unseen amid the winter night and the lamp burned within a rosy light and the wet street was shining in the rain. I couldn't make heads or tails of this one. Hmm. So what I see in this one, you know, and I'm, I'm connecting it with war, and I presume that he's imagining what death might be like. Yeah. And so what, yeah. So just in one, you know, very simple reading, and it might connect to something else that's more personal to Lewis, um, which we can speculate about. And I, you know, 
I won't I won't let the the potential inaccuracies or speculation stop me from speculating. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know, maybe this is this is just his imagination of um, what a lot of soldiers have is a is a dream to get back to a person and or a home or both that they love to get away from this war and to go back to peace. And, you know, he has a dream that he got to go back home to his, his beloved's house and he's there. And I just imagine this scene where he's like, I'm, I can't get close and I can't get in. And I'm wondering if it's because, you know, I've done something wrong from being held back for, uh, you know, some secret sin that I have in my heart. And that's why I can't partake in this, um, this goodness. And then he realized, Oh, wait a second. I'm, I'm dead. I'm just a, a ghost that's passing by this house. Of course I can't get in. And this last stanza, I'm trying to make it all connect there. So thus I found my true love's house again and stood unseen amid the winter's night and the lamp burned within a rosy light and the wet street was shining in the rain. So, you know, maybe he woke from the dream and maybe he made it back home. Um, at least whoever it is that's the narrator in this poem. So that that's just one not fully formed idea that I had as I was reading through it. And then, you know, I, I connect things back to his mom quite a bit whenever he's talking about longing and missing his beloved. So Maybe, you know, most of the time, Beloved is talking about a, a romantic interest. I, I, at least that's what I associate it with in yeah, poetry and literature. Yeah. But, you know, perhaps there's a piece of his, his mother in there somewhere, too, who he, you know, lost when he was very young. So those are just a, a couple of ideas that I think about as I read this one. Yeah, the only thought I have on this poem is that I thought he might have written it while looking at the corpse of a soldier. Mm. and imagining what that soldier might be experiencing yeah going home and wanting to go in but he can't because he's dead yeah. you know I, I kind of I, because it certainly isn't his his personal experience he didn't right. die so right. um so i just thought i wonder if he was just imagining what it would be like to be a ghost mm. and, you know like that dead soldier right there, you know, where's he going to go? Where did he go? Did he go home? Mm -hmm. Do you think he could go in? Did he realized he was a ghost. Yeah. You know? It's like maybe even just the, the last thoughts that are firing through the brain as someone's dying. Right. Yeah. You know, we, yeah, he says he's he, in the beginning of it. He says, I stood out beneath the drenching rain and all the street was bare and black with night. And then last verse he says, and stood unseen amid the winter night and the lamp burned within a rosy light and the wet street was shining in the rain. So two different, two different settings. Mm -hmm. um, maybe one that he's imagining and one that it really is. Yeah. And there he's standing there and, and, you know, and he's like, okay, I'm, I'm actually standing out in front of my true love's house. And, and here I am, and yeah. I'm alive, you know? It's the difference between the, um, the I'm losing the word for it, but the, um, 
hopeless. It's not the it's not the word that I'm looking for, but the the hopeless dreams of the hopeless want or desire of the one who died who can't actually experience it. And then that in comparison with, you know, somebody who's actually there and being able yeah. to walk home to their beloved. Yeah. If it was a film, if it was a movie, you'd have this like black and white thing panning a, panning a, you know, war torn scene, you know, of the trenches and a body laying there. And, mm. and, and then that, that soul, somehow standing on a street and realizing it was a ghost mm -hmm. and then it would end with the full color thing of, of C.S. Lewis standing, standing, actually standing outside of his friend's house or his own home. Right. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So that's how it feels to me. But like I said, I couldn't really make heads or tails of it. Like I don't really know what, you know, what he's, if he's talking about himself or he's talking about someone else or, Probably both. Well, I know that he had um, he had a friend. I'm probably going to get the name wrong, but I think it's Patty Moore was his friend in the war who they, he made a promise to that if his friend were to die um, in battle, that he committed to go back home and care for his mother and um, his sister. Right. And that ended up happening. And so he went back and um, cared for her. And, you know, there's no, there's no direct evidence of this, but, you know, there was, there is um, strong suspicion that, uh, you know, he had more than a, a friendly relationship with his best friend's mom. Um, you know, that they were, uh, that they had a romantic relationship. Um, and it's something that apparently he never talked about or wrote about, you know, his whole life. But I'm just curious if, um, when this poem was written, if it had something to do with, you know, his friend dying. Good. Yeah. Good. It'd be interesting to know when his friend died. Like, yeah. If he died early in the war or later on or how old they were, you know. Yeah. It's probably somewhere in the many biographies that I haven't read that I need to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about that. You know, you mentioned that one day that you had never read any anything else written by anyone else about C.S. Lewis. And I yeah. thought, yeah, that's not such a bad thing. <laughs> you know, because when you wander around with the man himself, you actually have, you know, you build a, a relationship with him, right? Yeah. And And when you... It's kind of like watching a movie before you read the book. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of my approach is I, I want to get as much of what he wrote and his thoughts and ideas and, his, you know, the, the spirit of the person um, mm -hmm. before I then go and read what other people had to say about him. But sometimes I just can't help it because I'm just like, it, reading is one thing, but it's, it's obviously very easy to pull up a a video and listen to a conversation and um mary pointed in the comments of our first conversation she pointed um us in the direction or maybe me in the direction oh yeah i think you responded to it too in the direction of uh, walter hooper uh having a conversation with eric metaxas a, a series of of conversations about c.s lewis and his experience with him and i've watched the first one and 
you know, there's some really fun information in those in those stories. You know, people who had first person uh, accounts and knew the man personally to hear them, you know, tell some stories. So that's always fun. But yeah, I am. I'm trying my best to hold off um, reading biographies until I can get through all of the body of of his work. Yeah, and you know, I often think if if we knew Moses personally or David personally or you know <laughs> we would be going well i don't know if i want to read their books you know because <laughs> 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 we place so much importance on yeah just the the way people work things out in their lives and their everyday and you know we're as human beings we make really bad calls on how to behave and, yeah and, and god doesn't you know, he obviously is <laughs> not necessarily concerned with that too much. You know, I mean, he he is, but but um, it doesn't it doesn't stop him. God from working. That's doesn't, right. It yeah. Doesn't stop and, God from working with us and through us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I, I think if we knew everything there was to know about those guys, we wouldn't think very highly of them. <laughs> no, and I, I think about this too. You know, if we knew everything there was to know about ourselves, I don't think that we'd like it very much. <laughs> we yeah. would. Um, we first of all, we wouldn't be able to handle it. I think we would just freeze in paralysis, or we. And that's just us. You know, the Bible talks about you can't look at God and live. Um, yeah. I, I think we probably couldn't look at the full breadth of ourselves and continue living we probably die at that too and then you know you you extrapolate that out infinitely into god well of course we can't look at god <laughs> and live i watched a uh i watched a uh, i started watching this guy who's got a youtube channel called inspiring philosophy mm -hmm. and he had a youtube uh, he had a video about um hell and i was watching it and he had a clip out of there's just a couple of actors out of uh, the great divorce and it was the woman who showed up and she was really excited because apparently her son had died before she did so she was like oh i want to go see my son mm -hmm. i remember that part of the book and her brother-in-law and, and it was acted out right it was a clip from i don't know it was like probably a low budget film or something but yeah, somebody dramatized several of those yeah yeah and um and I thought, wow, you know, I wouldn't be much different than her. I was watching it, and I was thinking, I would, have said, I would say that. I would say you have no idea what a mother's love for her child is like. You know, I would, I would think all those things, you know, and say all those things, right? Yeah. It was really disturbing, actually, for me to watch that. I was just like, wow. Yeah. So, like you're saying, you know, if we knew everything there was to know about ourselves, it would be yeah. a little terrifying. That's a really, really good book. I um, I want to do something with that book. I haven't quite figured out quite what, you know, something with a video, um, but I'm still thinking it through. Julie and I have had, Julian and I have had a conversation about it. He, he recently read it, um, but we were unable to record it. So, <laughs> yeah. oh, well. Oh, well, we can tackle it after this one. Yeah, right. <laughs> Well, we've got, I think we've got enough time for this one more poem. Okay, let's do it. All 
right. Yeah, you want to read that one? Yeah. Okay. This is one. Oh, no, this is not the long one. Okay. Apology. If men should ask Despoina why I tell of nothing glad nor noble in my verse to lighten hearts beneath this present curse and build a heaven of dreams in real hell, go you to them and speak among them thus. There were no greater grief than to recall down in the rotting grave where the live worms crawl, green fields above that smiled so sweet to us. So is it good to tell old tales of Troynovant? There's praises of dead heroes tried and sage, or sing the queens of unforgotten age, Brynhild and Maeve and Virgin Bradamant. How should I sing of them? Can it be good to think of glory now when all is done and all our labor underneath the sun has brought us this and not the thing we would? All these were rosy visions of the night, the loveliness and wisdom feigned of old, but now we wake. The east is pale and cold. No hope is in the dawn and no delight. <laughs> this one is very similar to um, the first one, Victory. In its, in its uh, you know, the feeling of it, it's kind of like, to me anyway, he's, He's apologizing for the war. He's apologizing for all of the, uh, you know, all of the devastation that they have spread across the earth and pain. And, you know, like he says, if men should ask why I tell of nothing glad or noble in my verse to lighten hearts beneath this present curse and build a heaven of dreams in real hell, Go to them and speak among them thus. There were no greater grief than to recall down the rotting grave where the live worms crawl, green fields above that smiled so sweet to us. So he doesn't have, he didn't feel, he doesn't feel like they were building a heaven of dreams, you know. He doesn't have anything fun and good to say about it. <laughs> He's sorry, you know. He's sorry for that. There was one. There was one piece in that poem that just made me think. You know, he's he's just making the point that all of these rosy dreams and poems and mythology and things that you know excite our hearts are just things that we were making up in the darkness in the night just to help us. It's just you know thing, things that we made up to feel better about the to cope with the reality, to cope with the harsh reality of uh, where it is that we actually live. And it's nothing more than that. You know, it, it just reminds me of a lot of, um, of secular atheist arguments against um, religion and how, yeah, it's just, it's just something that we've made up to, um, to help us feel better. Um, that was good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, because he was such a mythology geek, really, mm -hmm. he just constantly draws all that back into it, right? Yeah. And, and a lot of the myth arose from 
battles. Like a lot of the people who were heroes were warriors and they died in battle and they were, you know, like, so he says, is it good to tell old tales of Troy in event, which is Troy, uh, Troy, or praise of dead heroes tried and sage, you know, like they're, you know, they're wise and they've done, they've done all these amazing things. Or sing the queens of unforgotten age. How should I sing of them? Can it be good to think of glory now? You know, because again, I think he's, he's looking at that battlefield and all the destruction and, and how, how can I sing these songs of dead heroes and you know because he's thinking about myth right mm -hmm. and myth glorifies all of this all of this thing that that he's looking at and he's looking at it and saying i don't see a song here i don't see you know like he says and all our labor under the sun has brought us this <laughs> not the thing we would you know which would have been, you know, and that, and that would maybe reflect back on how he felt as a young man going off to war and he's going to be a hero and he's going to win the battle and, you know, but that changes when you have to stick a bayonet in someone's chest, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think, it, I think it's, it's in that same vein as the victory poem, but, but it, he calls it apology, you know? So it's kind of like, oof, I'm, I am so sorry, you know, this is not, this is not cool. This is not good. Yeah, it's, it's, um, well, I was just thinking about that. The apology is almost, I mean, there's kind of a sarcasm in that too. You know, I'm not going to apologize for not telling you these, well, to be, you know, to be direct with it. I'm not going to apologize for not telling you these lies. Yeah. <laughs> it's in yeah, all yeah, mythology. Yeah. Not going to build a, dream, a heaven of dreams in a real hell. That's yeah. what he says in the beginning, right? I'm not going to build that for you. I'm not going to make this, I'm not going to glorify it. Yeah. I hear, I hear echoes of um, Peter Hitchens in this. Mm. Or not uh, Peter Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens. <laughs> I was going to say Peter. <laughs> Peter. Peter's the Christian. Never mind. Uh, no, Christopher Hitchens. Um, you know, it's just, it just sounds very similar to um, what Hitchens sounds like when, you know, he gets very passionate or when he would get very passionate um, about, no, this is not, I just, this is not, I'm not going to <laughs> make it pretty. capitulate to these these fairy tales to these stories there's i've seen too much there's too much around me um that says different mm -hmm. yeah and it's you know just even in saying that it reminds me of jordan peterson like my husband and i were talking about it the other day um because i was i was t talking to him about we had a, we had a discussion on one of the uh, general chats we were talking about how to move in the world in such a way that you could change this you know extreme polarization that everybody feels like they're in you know and i felt that the only way you can do that is actually just by what you know what jordan peterson says it's an individual it's it, it starts with the individual Mm -hmm. And the individual 
you know, speaking the truth or at least not lying, right? And thinking about them, you know, improving their lives and which, but also the lives of their family and their wider community and so on. And, um, and I thought, you know, I was talking to my husband about it and I said, well, one of the interesting things about that is that if Jordan Peterson didn't think like that, he would have never showed up on the radar. Mm-hmm. Or if, he didn't, if he didn't implement that in his life, because when, when it got to like where C.S. Lewis is in here, I'm not, I'm not apologizing, right? I'm not going to make it pretty. Or Christopher Hitchens, same, same principle, really, of, of a mode of being. Is and Jordan Peterson, you know, he said, "Okay, that I'm not. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not doing it. You're not mm-hmm. going to coerce me. I'm not going down that road mm-hmm. because because of the consequences, not because I'm too proud, but because it's not right, right? Yeah, it's not a thing to do. Yeah, if he hadn't have, if he hadn't have walked out what he believes, acted right on what he believes, because that's really where, like you were saying in the last conversation." what we believe is what we act out. Yeah. Then he would, nobody would, you know, he'd still be a guy with a bunch of YouTube videos that a few people would have benefited from. Yeah. Yeah, There's there's another conversation that I had recently where, um, you know, I talk about one of the things that I appreciate about Peterson and it's that, you know, he's, he's just, and, and Paul Vanderclay has said this, you know, I don't think Peterson necessarily even fully understands <laughs> what he's doing, but whatever he's doing, you know, he's able to speak to people um, in ways where they couldn't hear it any other way. Um, and in the conversation that we had, uh, uh, it was between me and two of our other randos who have been on Paul's channel, um, Cassidy and Christian, and that'll, I don't know if that's going to come out before this or, or after this, but, you know, I was just, I was just talking about how, um, you know, his, his ability, the thing that I admire is his ability, his ability to communicate um, very relevant, well, to make the Bible and the mythopoetic compelling um where churches have seemed to have been unable to do that to a broad swath of a very secularist um materialist um very scientifically well modernistic mind um you know it's it's very hard to find any of those things compelling whenever everything that modernity has done has made so many things that seemed magical or impossible or would seem that way, you know, to someone who lived 100 years ago, a reality for us. Um, but, you know, what we found is uh, these things are somehow disconnecting us from meaning and um, sometimes from hope. I really liked your hope and hope versus meaning crisis conversation that you had with um, Mary and with Karen. Um, but yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't remember what we were just talking about that led me off in this direction, but you know, Peterson himself, uh, there's just something 
there's there's something there's some kind of gift or something that's happening through him um, that's making it possible for people to hear and to see um, where for whatever reason they couldn't before. Well, you know, he doesn't just say what he thinks. He, you know, there are a lot of people who can say things. Stephen Pinker, for example, mm. he can say a lot of stuff. He's done all the research, he says everything, and it sounds, to me anyways, very mechanical and very robotic and very detached, mm -hmm. right? But Jordan Peterson has embodied all the thoughts that he has had over the years. He's come to a conclusion about what's the most important thing for him. And he's tried, like he said himself, he's tried to He's tried to undercut his own arguments, and he can't. And so he feels secure in what he's what he's saying. You know, he doesn't think there's any other way around it. And um, and that is the kind of that that hero's journey, right? Like uh, we were talking in the general chat, and Ironroot said, "Well, the hero doesn't always have to slay the dragons on the outside; he can be slaying them on the inside." Yeah. Right. Yep. And so when you get to that point in your life where you embody it, it's, that's why I think he's, he uses the term, I act as if God is real. Because there is no other way to really be in the world. You can, you can skate all over the surface of everything, but it isn't real until you embody it. And, and you have to... You embody it through your own experiences. You know, you learn your, you learn through life and the, and the difficulties, pain, suffering. You know, yeah. those are the, those are the constraints, right? That force you down this nice little narrow way, you know, and and then you, and then you come up with something, right? So yeah. Anyway, I just think that that's the appeal that he has. It's that when he's when he's speaking to people, it it's moving them, mm. literally. It's goose. It's, you know, it's tears. It's kind of all this, because he's not talking off the top of his head. He's talking out of his heart. He's, he's, it's embodied. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're, we're pretty close to an hour. Um, okay. And well, so we got through more than three now. We did four. Wow, look at that. We're increasing our pace. <laughs> Ode for New Year's is the next one, and it's a little longer. Well, we've got that one to look forward to then. So until next time, I will end the uh, recording right here. <laughs>